can't remember if it was the trip we went on or the one after that. Major things happened almost every time I've been there. Like I was in the country, for example, when Osama bin Laden was executed. Yeah. I just, I came to... So you were, you were in the vicinity? Yeah, I was in Pakistan. A couple of weeks earlier, I'd actually been at a Christian Bible conference like an hour away from where he was living. So that was an interesting thought. Hi, I'm Alan Hill, the nostalgic vagabond. I lived out of a backpack for many years during my 20s and some 30s. I'm less of a nomad these days. In this podcast series, I'm catching up with old friends, wonderful people I've met in the Traveller's Trek. And what better time is there to catch up, reminisce, and see how everyone is getting on in 2020? I hope you enjoy hearing about our journeys as much as we've enjoyed sharing. Every journey starts somewhere. When I look back, reflect on my travels over the years, there are small periods of time, maybe of a few weeks, where I can pinpoint periods of personal growth. Scout Jamboree in Queensland, age 12. French language trip to New Mia, New Caledonia, age 15. Spontaneous trip across the country to Perth, whilst I was on break from university, age 21. On all these occasions, I found myself in situations where I learned small, but still important lessons in life. I think there are phases of personal growth that are gradual, sometimes perhaps accelerated. But there are also times, on my journey at least, isolated events where I can articulate a step change in my thoughts, my worldview, opinions on culture, my idea of myself and where I come from. One example of this was my trip to Pakistan in 2007. I still remember that intense emotional experience. You could call it culture shock, but it was immediate. The change, I mean. I remember the airport at Lahore, seeming like a rundown colonial railway station, not a shiny glass international airport. I remember the cars with seatbelts ripped out of them, driven on highways, only half built, but still driving at 100 kilometers an hour, even on the dirt bits. Flashing lights, tooting horns, speeding past retro truck models covered in actual jewelry. Legit. I remember cruising through small towns and the intense stares of the local people, piercing with a curiosity and concern as they warmed themselves by the fires lit in metal drums on the narrow roadside. And I particularly remember seeing a curious and slightly concerned stare, a familiar stare, because I recognised this person. Waiting for me at the top of the street was Cameron Thompson, my best mate from high school, and my guest on this episode. The reason why I travelled to Pakistan in three weeks in 2007-2008 was to attend Cameron's wedding there. Both of us being from small town Australia, Cameron and I found the whole cultural experience of a Pakistan wedding slightly overwhelming, to say the least. You'll hear about that later. I'm zooming in to the other side of the world to talk with Cameron in Naruma, a small town on the east coast of Australia, where he's taking a few days R&R from this brutal 2020. COVID, plus the terrible bushfires over the recent summer. Plans cancelled, but life's still moving forward. Adapting. I wanted to catch up with Cameron and reminisce about some of the adventures we've been on together, but also talk more about some of his trips to adventurous destinations in Asia and also Africa. Our journeys started a long time ago, but they're not finished yet, I hope. The satellite link on this episode wasn't perfect, but I've tried to edit out the glitches in post. Hope you enjoy the story. All right then, here we go. Cameron Thompson, long time no see. How's it going, man? It's good, man. How are you? <laughs> yeah, I'm pretty well. I'm in Liverpool these days. Uh, we've got what they say is a heat wave, but you and me being from Australia, it's not really a heat wave, is it? It's just <laughs> hot weather. But I think sometimes the people over here need to like really... Oh, dear. <laughs> What's the temperature? Well, where I am, it's high 20s. In London and in the south, it's into the 30s. Oh, okay. So it's not 40-odd. Um, we've been through mid forties before and been out mowing lawns and yeah. you know working stalls in in outdoor spaces and stuff and putting sun cream on four or five times a day. So yeah. I think it's another level. But the the humidity here is a bit higher, so I think that doesn't help. Things. Oh, that's the worst. <laughs> Where are you at the moment, mate? I'm in Naruma at the moment, which is on the south coast of New South Wales. 
Australia. Bit of a staycation? Well, my family and I, we were meant to be visiting the UK and Europe around this time. And uh, due to the COVID, we can't do that. Do you think domestic travel is a bit underrated? I don't know. Aussies seem to have this infatuation to going to like cheap Asian places. Yeah, and I just think we've got everything in Australia already. It's a bit monocultural though, but yeah, we've got mountains, we've got oceans and rivers and lakes and everything, you know, it's it's pretty hard to beat. Yeah, there's a, a similar culture in the UK where people who are from here, they don't want to do holidays in the UK and they want to go into the continent, into Europe, which I totally understand because the culture changes and the distance is very small yeah. to get there. So you were supposed to be in the UK? Yeah, UK and Finland and a bunch of places was going to be visiting Scotland as well and exploring the uh, the heritage and the roots. My mum's from Scotland originally. So instead, I went to Cabago the other day and I was trying to track down some of my ancestors who apparently emigrated there from Ireland and were farmers down there. But Cabago went through a rough time. It got hit really bad with the bushfires this summer. A lot of farms were lost down there. Even right into the town, there was, or the village, there was, you know, damage. There was properties. I saw one, it must have been a really old property just off the highway. It had the brick stairs and it had a fireplace. And that's all that was left. Devastation. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it was huge. And all around, normally you see the eucalyptus forests on the hills and mountains, and it was all black. Tough times, eh? Well, Cameron, thanks for coming on the show all the way from Naruma in Australia. We've known each other, I was thinking about this the other day, since the final term of 1995. Sounds about right. 25 years almost, yeah. I know, man. (laughs) We went through high school together and uh, even went on some adventures post-high school as well. And I'd like to, let's uh, get into a bit of a nostalgic mood about some of these old adventures post high school. Mm. One in particular, which for me was fairly substantial in enlightening my cultural mindset, and that was going to your wedding in Pakistan. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that was a real culture shock. It was 2007, 2008, wasn't it? Yeah, that was a wild one. Because I think Benazir Bhutto, the former prime minister, she'd come back to the country to contest the next election. and. I believe she got assassinated while you were en route yeah. or something like that. So you sort of got stuck a bit. The whole country went into like a lockdown for a couple of days. Yeah, what was that like trying to get to, from the airport to the... What actually happened, you, you were already in Pakistan. You'd been there maybe a week mm-hmm. sort of acclimatizing and meeting the family and just settling into the, the environment there before the wedding, which was going to happen even the week after that. And I had planned to come over and hang out with you and, you know, meet the family as well for a couple of weeks too. And also just have a really awesome adventure in a completely different landscape to Australia. My plan was to stop through Singapore because that was the, uh, the deal I got through Singapore Air. And I remember going to bed on my final night in Singapore. Basically, the next day I was just going to get on a plane again and come in to Lahore. It was Lahore we went to, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. You sent me a, a text or you sent me an email or, or you, you contacted me somehow and I only got it as I was going to sleep and you said, just to let you know, things are a bit dodgy at the moment. Um, <laughs> there's some stuff going down. Be safe. We'll be waiting for you. Someone's coming to pick you up at the airport. Just, I'm, I'm praying for you. And I was like, what? what? And I was really ignorant to oh, no. what the situation was. And I was just really blasé. I was like, yeah, cool. You know, someone's going to meet me. Normally, I'd find my own way, so I was really appreciative that someone was going to meet me. As it turned out, I was very, very fortunate because I was at Singapore Airport in the toilets, in in the washroom, washing my hands, literally 30 minutes before boarding my flight. At the washroom, I looked over my shoulder, and there was a guy I recognized washing his hands as well. And I was so tripped because, I mean, what's the likelihood of meeting somebody in the toilet that you recognize? And so I just yelled out, Hey, I know you. And he's like, Yeah, I know you as well. And he was a colleague of mine that I used to work with at the supermarket. So it was just bizarre to meet somebody in an airport toilet who you knew, who was from Pakistan. I think his family's from Fazlabad, which isn't too far away from Lahore, is it? No. And I said to him, What are you doing here, man? 
And he said, oh, I'm just going home for a month to see my family. Oh, right. So you're going to Pakistan? And he said, yeah, yeah, yeah. He said, where are you going? And I said, I'm going to Pakistan, man. We're on the same flight. <laughs> That's cool. That's really cool. So it was so awesome because basically he looked after me as we entered the airport and went through uh, customs and everything. And he obviously can speak the language. And, you know, I was getting these strange looks because I looked oh, yeah. so much out of place going through this airport. And he was just like, no, no, he's my mate. He's with me. So he basically took me all the way through. I was walking with him out the exit and then someone just grabbed my shoulder and it was Uncle Chachu Betty. Chachu Betty? Yeah. Chachu Betty. And Shucky were were there to greet me. And I didn't know who these people were, (laughs) but they had a cardboard sign that said Alan Hill, completely spelt wrong. Oh, no. (laughs) But I was like, oh, that's got to be me. (laughs) How did they spell it? Um, I think they used a U instead of an A or an E instead of an I or, or something, oh, something like oh. Alun Hell or something like that. Anyway, it was fairly obvious. They knew that I was the guy they were after. <laughs> the only white guy on the flight. I basically just waved goodbye to my friend from the supermarket. And uh, yeah, I haven't actually seen him since. Oh, wow. It was an interesting time there. How, how was it for you first time in Pakistan, getting married in Pakistan, meeting your future wife's uncles and cousins and parents and sisters and was it sort of overwhelming for you yeah it was pretty overwhelming yeah in pakistan i guess in india too they call it the joint family system so often you've got multiple generations living in the same home and you know everyone's an uncle or an auntie if they're the older generation or a brother or sister if they're your generation so one of the times you know my father-in-law had uh, nine siblings and I remember we'd met all these uncles and I was saying to Naomi, like, I think we've exceeded the number of like uncles. Is this guy a real uncle or what's going on? <laughs> she was like, no, no, that's rude to ask. <laughs> Don't say that. So, you know, because everyone's your uncle. <laughs> I was like, okay, I know you had like five uncles, but come on, you know, five or six. <laughs> yeah. And it's funny too, once you learn the language in that language, they have a name for like whether the uncle's on the father's side or mother's side and are they the elder or younger and there's all this you know the hierarchy is quite important in that sense Mm. yeah I was quite overwhelmed and just trying to go along with things I guess yeah it was it was the opposite like I guess my idea of having a wedding like you know we grew up on the coast it's pretty laid-back sort of place and you know people would have like weddings on the beach or when I was at uni, I'd been to people's weddings that were like, yeah. bring your own picnic lunch and, you know, in someone's backyard. <laughs> yeah, so casual. And this was the opposite of casual. This is a wedding that goes for a week, with, you know, parties every night leading up to it and then multiple events and hundreds of people who, you know, I only, <laughs> I knew my wife and you and my mom and dad. And that's the only people I knew. So, you know, on the wedding, it was like 400 people. I think even my wife didn't know all of them. It was just, yeah. you know, and I'm told that wasn't even a big wedding, you know. <laughs> it was pretty out there. Was it like a big roller coaster ride? Yeah, because you don't know what's going on and you're told to do stuff and I don't know what's happening right now. And uh, my bugbear was like I was promised a horse, <laughs> you know. I meant to ride in on a horse in the wedding procession. A horse? Yeah, I was meant to get a horse, you know, and I never got <laughs> to this day. I'm bitter about the horse because <laughs> it was wedding season as a particular and all the horses were taken so i didn't get a horse can you ride a horse cameron well anyone can ride a pakistani horse there's someone leading it (laughs) and the bizarre thing was so when you're coming into the wedding hall there was a military style marching band decked out in kilts Mm. and scottish attire and that just seemed so out of place but uh it was like a hangover from british colonization and now you know, Pakistan manufactures like 70% of the quilts and Scottish Thai products, you know, sparrings and, and everything. <laughs> that was strange to see, you know, bagpipes in Pakistan and quilts. You know? yeah. <laughs> Is this, I remember the part where you and me and a couple of the brothers or cousins, whatever they called them, I think they were, they were actual, they were actual cousins blood cousins i think cousins yeah but full on brothers yeah they were the four i think there were four or five of us you and me and then a couple of them with us too and there were drums going bang 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 and music and pipes and mm-hmm. you and i just looked at each other and thinking don't know what's going on <laughs> but this is pretty amazing 
And then somebody came up to us and started putting rupees on our forehead. Yeah. And then someone else was taking rupees from them. So basically, two people were just passing rupees to each other and touching our forehead at, at the pro. And, you know, just 10, 20, 30 rupees are just. Choo, choo, choo. And you and I looked at each other saying, hmm, this is interesting. I don't know what's happening here either. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that was a funny one. That's a superstition that's hung over. But basically, the idea is. Uh, you look so good on this day that something bad is surely to happen. So let's kind of pay off the evil spirit. Mm. That's what was happening. Yeah, yeah. That's the origins so of we, it. So we were uh, being protected. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Everyone. Yeah. So uh, people get wads of like new notes from the bank specifically to throw on these days, you know. And guys have different techniques of uh, their style as they throw the money <laughs> sort of showing off a bit, you get this whole wad and you just, you know, flick it all out and uh, you look like a cool dude. It was a massive party. Yeah, it, yeah. It was incredible. They were allowed to have fireworks back then and not anymore. Yeah, they really get into their weddings. I mean, since that time, one of the presidents literally had an executive order that to only have one main dish at a wedding. Like, they go so crazy for weddings that the president had to step in because people were, like, bankrupting themselves trying to outdo each other with the awesomeness of their banquets and wedding receptions. Wow. <laughs> that they had inspectors and they had a presidential order that, you know, <laughs> you can only have one main dish. You know? <laughs> Don't bankrupt yourself trying to outdo your neighbour. Pretty much. Is that basically what was happening? Yeah, yeah, because everyone keeps track of it, you know, like, who gave what on which wedding and they all try and one-up each other in a way. Yeah. It's kind of sweet, but some folks put themselves in a hole of debt to do it so yeah, yeah i can imagine yeah not so good one thing cameron i remember from the wedding uh it was the first night and i, I believe it was called the mendy night yeah it was a very colorful affair mm. and i remember two things specifically about that night one was we were holding a towel over your head for <laughs> ages the four of us I, I was on one corner and then cousins were on the other three and you were standing underneath and the other thing that I remember too was you sitting with Nomi, your bride to be, on a throne for a long time. <laughs> and I was just wondering, yeah. being such the center of attention with hundreds of people taking pictures and looking at you, how that made you feel? Uh, yeah, it was strange because you are the center of attention, but you are not really engaging it. You're sort of up on a stage and it's like people are bringing offerings sort of thing. Pakistan's an Islamic country and my wife's family is Christian, but this is some sort of throwback to like Hindu tradition. Okay. So yeah, people are coming up and they're, they're putting the henna, like this dye on you and they're feeding you a sweet, but it's not like all the family are coming up to congratulate you or have a chat or anything like that. They're just, everyone's getting their photo off and everyone's doing this sort of blessing, I guess. So mm. it was very strange. The, the way weddings are over there, it's like people are having fun in your honor you don't get to have the fun at the wedding. <laughs> like everyone else except the couple has fun, you know, <laughs> dancing and carrying on. But uh, at that time, it's changed a bit now, but you were meant to look sort of sober and like really serious and not smile too much, especially the girl. She wasn't meant to smile. She's not meant mm. to be happy to be, and be sad. She's living a family. I remember Nomi really, really struggling to not smile because she was so happy. She was really <laughs> having to act to look yeah. somber and yeah. sort of flat, I guess. Mm. But she just wanted to smile. <laughs> yeah, so, and I took it all very seriously. I was trying to look serious, so, but people had to tell me to smile. But I, I've been sort of prepped for a few of these traditions, but I have so many traditions. And I've uh, been back there to different weddings since. And basically, the more money you have, the more of these different traditions and ceremonies you can do, if you can afford to do them. There seems to be like no limit to the amount of wedding associated traditions. So, ours turned out to be quite simple. <laughs> So, yeah, the Mendy, it's like uh, normally they do it separately. Like I didn't have anyone else there to do it with. It's like a big party the day before the wedding and it's sort of a preparation day for drums. And, yeah, it was a wild time, cousins dancing and whatnot. It's pretty so, nice. And, the, and the, the clothes we had to wear too, the clothes were really wicked. It was so cool. Yeah, they're right into yellows and greens and oranges on the Mendy day. So reflective of that. And uh, some of the, the younger cousins, they were like blackmailing me that like, you got to give us some money for grog so that we can <laughs> dance on your party, you know, otherwise we won't be in the mood, you know. <laughs> so, <laughs> which they deny these days. So. Yeah, it is, man. <laughs> but yeah, there's so many ceremonies. Yeah, bargainings and it's like everyone wants to take a cut. 
Like they had at the Mindy, they had a token yeah. poor person, this lady who's like a professional poor person to sit at Mindy days and gets the donations. It was like very strange. I don't even know mm. if she was actually poor, but she dresses poor and that's her job. She goes around to weddings looking poor. <laughs> when you go to different countries and experience different cultures, you often find what would appear to be just completely bizarre when it, you compare it to your native culture but mm. over there it's just completely normal isn't it i remember watching a program once and in japan they pay professional mourners to come to a funeral right. apologies once again for misremembered information the program i'm doing terribly at referencing is carl pilkington's the Morning of life series and the episode titled death carl visited taiwan where he experienced a funeral scene where being a mourner is a vocational endeavor. Right. And cry and be upset on behalf of the of the person who's died. Wow. To an Australian person or probably, you know, most Western people, a professional mourner seems absurd. Yeah. In their culture, that's just the norm. Yeah. The one I find really strange is there's people who I guess you could say something equivalent to being trans in that community. I don't know if you saw any when we were there. And they're kind of ostracized, like they live in their own society, but they come on special occasions and dance and this and that. Because it's uh, Islamic culture, men and women or boys and girls don't dance with each other for dance parties. But mm, I remember that. I've been at parties and they'll dance with, uh, like often these people who are these trans type people, they make their living dancing mm. and coming to parties and dancing and that sort of thing. And so they'll dance with them. So it was very strange to me considering okay you're not allowed to dance with a woman but... are the trans people allowed to dance with both genders uh i guess girls don't really get into it but i was sort of a bit worried it might be a bit exploitative but it's a bit rough for them especially they come on when a child is born when a baby boy is born and they come to the home and dance or you know at a party to celebrate that sort of thing and yeah some guys will dance with them but they would never be allowed to dance with a woman in public <laughs> so it's uh okay. it's a strange Thing. And also, you know, obviously homosexuality is forbidden thing in Islamic countries. So yeah. you're like dancing and they're trying to copy music videos and carrying on like fools. But yeah, it's a strange, strange way that... A different cultural experience. Yeah, so many things. Yeah, yeah, yeah mm. definitely. You've been to Pakistan quite a few times since your wedding in 2008 yeah. and even with your family. Mm. Have you slowly become more normalized in visiting that culture with time? Yeah, definitely. I think, yeah, and that's what's going to happen at first. It's a bit idealistic going there and you see things and you go, oh, it could be like this or that, you know, things could be better or I could just show this person this thing. And you realise, you know, you're not going to change things. It's arrogant to think that. Yes. And so you, you have to adapt yourself to the situation. And people try in their own way it's a, to be very accommodating. It's such a hospitable place. Just some, like, street vendor who's just got a table, not even a shop. I mean, everyone will offer you tea and yeah. be so nice to you. Yeah, so I've had to adapt myself. There's things that, you know, I still can't make sense of, and but I try my best to go along with things. And I guess the best thing for you is that you've got Nomi there to explain everything in detail to you because she understands her culture and also understands your culture yeah. and can bridge some of the differences and help you to gauge what is going on in this context to be honest wedding she's too busy having a good time she just wants to party <laughs> so <laughs> just kind of go along with it yeah weddings are like a big deal. big deal it's interesting so cameron that wasn't the first adventure we had together i remember when we were late teens we had this ideal thought that we would bail and go to the USA in 2002, 2003, just after we'd finished high school. And the reality was we had no money. <laughs> yeah, it's the problem. We ended up making a road trip to Tasmania. Ooh. Do you remember that time? Oh, of course. Ironically, yeah. do you remember the, the, the faded white car we used to drive around? Oh, yeah. Toyota Corona. Yeah. Almost unbreakable. Corona. Yeah. <laughs> corona. Oh, <laughs> I never thought of that. Oh, oh yeah. man. We went from our home of Batemans Bay down to Melbourne into Tasmania and cruised around mm. for a few weeks. And then basically the car was falling to bits, so we had to escort it back home. Mm. Do you have any favorite memories from that trip? Probably when we, we did some fruit picking, strawberry picking down in the Huon Valley, which is in the south of Tasmania. And we met some like Sudanese refugee migrants. 
and we made friends with them and that was great just hanging out and we were trying to teach them Australianism. Yeah, I remember Victor and Robert, wasn't You're it? right, yeah, I, I hadn't remembered that. But yeah, at that time, Australia had this idea of putting Sudanese refugees in Tasmania because they thought it's a less population, it won't be so overwhelming for them. But I don't know the wisdom in that, whether it was good or not, but certainly mm. it was an amazing sight to see these people in Tasmania. Yeah, because at that time, uh, African migrants or African refugee migrants from the, where we grew up, we hadn't really seen no, many of them no, at that no, time in our lives, had we? And these guys were the biggest blokes I'd ever seen in my oh, life. Oh, my goodness. Do you remember yeah. how tall they were? They were gigantic. Yeah. <laughs> I thought you were tall, but... <laughs> Do you remember Victor sitting in the back of the car in your Corona, which isn't a small car by any means? You and me were in the front, and he was sat in the middle at the back, man spreading to the max just so his <laughs> knees didn't hit the back of the seats. Oh, poor bloke. He was probably pushing seven foot. He must have been. I don't know how they were. I mean, it was hard enough for me squatting down to pick strawberries. I don't know how they were doing it at that height. It must have been absolutely <laughs> backbreaking for them. Yeah. Good times. It's it's funny because years later I ended up uh, working with refugee young people in Sydney, and a lot of them were Sudanese as well. So it was interesting to have been exposed to a little bit of different culture and all that. Did you end up teaching these guys in Sydney the same types of Australianisms that we were teaching Victor? No. <laughs> I did not. No. Do you remember what we were teaching him? <laughs> uh, we were teaching him what bogans were. <laughs> Teaching Victor what a bogan was. Yeah, he loved it, didn't he? Yeah. Do you remember he used to uh, he used to sing in the back seat? Yeah, he was some sort of choir master or something back in the day. Yeah. That was cool. I wonder where he is now. For me, Tasmania, it felt like we were going back in time, I don't know, at least 10 years, maybe more. You know, there was sort of some archaic Australian expressions and just the speed of life was much less. So it's really nice. I would suggest anyone to go there interesting place yeah make sure you've got a jacket on you at all times so. yeah it has a weather sort of akin to the uk that's oh, that's okay. what i sort of discovered that even in the beginnings of summer because we were there in december yeah. long long evenings like you get in the uk the sun doesn't set for a long time and then you need a jacket because it gets cool you know relatively quickly and even the peak of the of the temperature in december which is the summertime was like 20 21 degrees sometimes yeah that isn't a summer temperature from where we grew up no that was almost the winter temperature and there was still i mean there was snow on the mountain peaks still. top cradle mountain yeah yeah and uh foolishly i mean we overpacked we were inexperienced travelers so <laughs> the car was chocolate <laughs> yeah. locked but i had you know like my bodyboard and um, swimming gear and all this and had this idea you know we're going on this summer trip and i think i tried to swim once and as soon as i entered the water all desire to swim left me. <laughs> We'd been hiked, I don't know, walking for a couple of hours to get to, I think it was Wine Glass Wine Bay. Wine Glass Bay. Yeah. It's a beautiful place and the water was beautiful. Everything was clean and perfect. But man, as soon as you got in that water, you did not want to be in there anymore. And that was summertime. In summer, yeah. So the water was pretty. Yeah, yeah. I remember um, driving, you were driving and I was in the front seat and I think we were listening to Moby or someone cool like that, just chilling. <laughs> And uh, there was something up on further up the road, this brown sort of bulbous thing. And I thought, is that a wombat? And like, no, nah, it can't be a wombat. And it wasn't moving. And we got closer to it. And then we just, bang, we just ran over it. Oh. And it was this massive log in the middle of the highway. Oh. Do you remember that? That was terrible. <laughs> yeah. And we had the two Sudanese fellas in the car too. I'm sure their heads must have hit the ceiling. <laughs> the poor bloke. The way it bounced, a massive dent in like sump. Yeah, the, the log, the log dented your oil sump to almost half the size. Oh, uh, the car cops some abuse on that bit, sadly. <laughs> yeah, it's a good time. When you go travelling these days, twenty twenty, do you have a particular type of technology or piece of equipment that you always take with you habitually? I mean, everything's on the phone now, so pretty much. Yeah. I think last time I went overseas, I didn't even take my SLR camera. I just, you know, took the phone. So even with your photography, you've just gone to the quality of the cameras in the phones these days? Yeah, I guess maybe in Pakistan, you just attract too much attention with a big camera like that to unwanted attention. So, Security thing? Yeah, I don't need to. And then everyone wants you to take their photos. Pakistanis love having their photo taken. Yeah, you just I remember have that. this massive obligation <laughs> to like photograph everyone. Yeah, I always have my, I, you know, like the laptop and that sort of thing. 
yeah, the biggest thing with overseas travel for me and traveling with family is just to take our time. You know, when I was younger, everything was just trying to do it as fast as possible with the least amount of money as possible. But that's not how I do it anymore. <laughs> just try and slow down and, you know, rest along the way, have some stopovers, you know, spend some extra money and just enjoy where you are and, you know, not get totally wrecked every time. You know, it's not a race. That's been really helpful. Do you think that change in mindset is a factor of age or because now you've got a family with younger kids and your priorities have shifted? Probably both. Yeah, I certainly, I can't pull all-nighters like I used to. So mm. <laughs> that's a big thing. But yeah, more so having small kids in tow and just trying to bear with what their actual abilities are uh, and not, not push things too much. Yeah, so sleep, that's the big thing. I think, I don't know about technology, but sleep. Yeah, being able to rest and have a shower along the way and it just improves everything, makes everything more bearable, basically, just slowing it down. What are some of the factors that, now that you have younger kids travelling with your family, some of the factors that you consider now that you might not have done if it was just you on your own or you with a, a friend or a partner? Yeah, um, we make sure to be a bit more self-sufficient in terms of having food and stuff with us, just so that we're not at the mercy of whatever's available wherever we're going. And uh, it's always good to get a place with a pool. A place with a pool. <laughs> yeah. So it just sort of gives the kids... Keep the kids occupied. Well, yeah, and it gives them something <laughs> to look forward to, that, you know, the hotel's going to have a pool. And, yeah, they're starting to get too big to share beds and stuff as well. So having to take the bigger rooms. <laughs> yeah, when I was younger, you know, you just crash on a couch or something like that. But, yeah, you want to make sure you going to a proper establishment basically these days you're not just going to mm. randomly go forever i've had to adjust my expectations as well because uh vehicle safety say in pakistan for example you know they don't have seat belts in the back and kids can be sitting on laps and this sort of thing which we know is really unsafe you just can't change it all i mean I mean, we ride around on the back of motorbikes no helmets on over there yeah i remember that too tolerance for this changes yeah so do you have a, a heightened stress and anxiety sometimes when you're in countries with different perceived safety requirements do you fear a bit more for your kids um no i mean pakistan's not somewhere i would go if we didn't have family there it's a beautiful country and all that but i wouldn't feel safe it's only because i'm with someone that speaks the language knows where they're going you know has local contact so it's certainly not yeah. somewhere i would go I can't remember if it was the trip we went on or the one after that because major things happened almost every time I've been there. Like I was in the country, for example, when Osama bin Laden was executed. Yeah. I just, I came to... So you were, you were in the vicinity? Yeah, I was in Pakistan. A couple of weeks earlier, I'd actually been at a Christian Bible conference like an hour away from where he was living. So that was an interesting thought. And there'd been, you know, anti-American mm. protests because before he was killed, there was a CIA agent who killed a couple of Pakistani agents over there. And there was a big furor about that, especially when he got released. So it was a tense time, but I'd come to a realization that there were certain things you could control and things that were beyond your control. So I kind of had a piece about things that feeling like, you know, we were meant to be there, meant to be doing what we were doing. And yeah, but we take as many precautions as we can. <laughs> Sure. You were there with your wife and kids when Osama bin Laden was was Yeah, killed. we only had one at the time, though, yeah. He was a baby. So, yeah, we were there. And uh, actually, a friend in Australia who's a journalist called me and told me because he wanted to know, you know, what's happening on the ground. sort of. And I was like, what? Get the, the inside intelligence. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It seems like people overseas knew about it before the local people. And uh, we were scheduled to go anyway shortly after that so it took a little while for all the protests and whatnot because you know obviously it was a military action on an allies foreign soil you know so it was a fairly mm. bold move yeah so there was there was some hurt feeling to say the least <laughs> yeah so it seems like there's quite a, a possibility for dramas when you're over there yeah. for the stuff to happen that's beyond your control yeah there is i mean we've been more than once just going about your business in the local market or something and suddenly you'll find yourself in the middle of a demonstration yeah. yeah there's been some moments that were quite yeah you know people shouting their death to america and stuff you know and we're with some american missionaries when this demonstration like we're in a market with some american missionaries like white as american missionaries standing out like sore thumb. do they think you're american too cameron uh yeah they call everyone english who's white actually like british english yeah not just english speaking yeah yeah englishman or whatever 
they're generally okay. Yeah, they don't assume you're American. So, and when they find out you're Australian, it's all good. You know, they want to talk. To Just start talking about cricket. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> to the roof. <laughs> Being the in-laws, they struggle to talk to you in English, but they perfectly understand commentary on cricket in English. No worries at all. They know exactly what's going on. That's amazing, isn't it? It's a really interesting place. And um, yeah, I know for some people, the risk profile would be too much to take children into that scenario and yeah, I try not to mm. do perhaps for the more adventurous yeah i wouldn't do it without there being someone there you know we're always with someone with your your trips to pakistan on many occasions you've been en route or coming back home you've bounced through other asian and emirates destinations when you're going to a place in asia or, or a, another country or a culture what are some of the things that you prioritize in choosing a place like that is it what kind of food they might have or what the weather's like, what language they're speaking or any particular cultural factors that appeal to you when you're visiting a foreign country? Usually it's about money first because when you're paying for... So, uh, so the, value, the value for money on the Aussie dollar? Yeah, example. yeah, and just the cost of flights as well and the cost of accommodation and everything. We try to go to new places as well if we can on the transit either through Singapore or Malaysia or, or the Emirates, you know. Mm. Um, we try to go to somewhere new, but yeah, we're fairly price sensitive. Especially with a family. Yeah, yeah. The kids are like on a 75% ticket now. So, you know, we're paying for four tickets. <laughs> yeah, my wife and I, we both like to try and see somewhere new. I like to try and have some sort of local experience, you know, something to do with history or whatever. And my wife likes to eat well and go shopping. So that's pretty much yeah, yeah. where it's at. Do you have a, a favorite destination so far that's been like a transit destination that you've gone to or from Pakistan? We like Malaysia a lot. Find people there really friendly and good value for money and great food. I mean, Singapore is an amazing city and the Emirates are great too. They're just, the problem with the Emirates is they're probably more expensive than Australia, like than having a hot really? Sydney or something. Yeah, because almost everything's imported, so uh, everything costs a lot. But it's an amazing place to see what people have done there you've been up that tower haven't you four times yeah what's that like oh it's a big tall building it does give me a bit of vertigo honestly looking down you only go about halfway up to the viewing platform so oh yeah so you're up about what half a kilometer then yeah i don't know i don't even remember how tall it is, is it like 800 meters or i think it's 800 plus it's a bloody big building <laughs> it's just amazing too because you have to walk through this tour first and you see the different renditions of the design. And I just feel like it was like the shake or whoever was just, and you see they go up step by step that like at first it was fairly modest and then bigger and bigger. I can just imagine him coming to its design. He's like, nah, make it bigger, bigger, bigger. <laughs> like I've got to outdo my brother in the other Emirate. Yeah, exactly. I've got to do, do something. So yeah, it went through multiple design it's it's a real feeder engineering it's an amazing amazing place it's such a strange place i mean they have an indoor snowfield in dubai and you know it's it's really interesting but strange at the same time do you get a feeling like it's just fake um a bit yeah it's hard because they they wiped out a lot of the original like they've actually recreated traditional like a historical town for display purposes, you know, because they, they did wipe out a lot of original stuff uh, when they built it. They were so, so busy building it. Yeah, to me, it's, it's kind of like any, I find a lot of the big Asian cities to all be the same, you know, so Hong Kong, Singapore, Kuala Lumpur. So it feels like that, that it's in the desert right. to me, you know, and it has a lot of Africans, you know, you don't see many Africans in Asia. So yeah. but it's got people from all over the world there, which is pretty interesting. And, yeah, it's pretty clever what they've done. They've tried to make themselves like a hub because right. I'm pretty sure Dubai's out of oil a while ago. They're trying to branch off into tourism and investments and all this other stuff. And it's a massive foreign population as well. So there's, it's probably like 25% of the population might be local people. Really? Yeah, something ridiculous like that. Yeah, and they don't give any permanent residency or citizenship to anyone. So everyone's on a working visa. For, for however long? For however long. Okay. Can't settle. Interesting. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. Completely different to, you know, what we might have experienced in the UK or Australia. Yeah, it's an amazing place, though, just to see, you know, what can be done. If you have cash. Well, yeah, if you've got enough cash and one person in charge, you can get a lot of things done because 
there's this highway called the Prince's Highway between our hometown and Sydney, you know, the major city in Australia. And it's just forever being worked on. Like, you know, it's never finished, you know. And then the, the highway, the motorway to the airport, there's always a section that's being worked on. And these guys just, you know, have thrown up a city in 40 years, like a massive, massive metropolis. And it's got public transport and it's got this and that. And it's, yeah, it's a different so, world, eh? Well, yeah, if you've got money and one person in charge, you can get a lot of things done. Fast five. Five quick fire questions require five quick fire answers. My guests must answer five random questions about travelling without thinking too much. Are you ready for the fast five? I'm ready. <laughs> Question number one. Shower shoes or no shoes? Thank you. Question number two. Left or right? Oh. Your, uh, your mic's not picking up very well. Oh, sorry, left? Okay. Question number three. Leather or rubber? Leather. Question number four. More or less? More. <laughs> Question number five. Full or empty? Full. <laughs> I don't know where this is going. That's it. You've completed the fast five. <laughs> fast five. 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 What does it mean? What does it mean? Do you have any questions that you were extremely curious by? <laughs> okay, I got the shower shoes thing, but I don't know what any of the other ones relate to. If you were standing at an intersection and you had two choices to go left or right. Oh, okay. Oh. Do you understand the leather or rubber context? It's not dirty, is it? No. <laughs> <laughs> have you ever seen the film um, Into the Wild? Yeah. So there's a seen scene that. in that film where they pick up the protagonist who's hitchhiking and the, the two people who pick up Supertramp are a couple who have a van and they say that if you're a leather tramp, you walk and if you're a rubber tramp, you have a vehicle. Oh. You've got leather shoes or rubber tyres. There you go. Apparently, you're a, a, a walker. Oh, dear. <laughs> Is that accurate? <laughs> oh, no. no. Well, I don't have a car. I feel like my legs are cut off. You know? so. <laughs> Did you ever hitchhike? Did I ever hitchhike? Yeah. Um, when I was in Canada and I was trying to get from the west side to fairly east, so having to cover many, many miles, and because I was in Canada where hitchhiking is fairly mainstream, I really considered to do it. Uh, in the end, I didn't. It's still something I need to do at some point, but for now, no, I still haven't done it, but I'm going to have to because I think it's a good experience. Yeah, yeah. Have you hitchhiked? Uh, yeah, I think in our town one time, I don't know, we'd missed a bus or something. I was with a friend, but like someone we knew picked us up and scolded us. So. <laughs> like, it was like, we were like teenagers, you know, so yeah. it, it, it doesn't really count. I don't think, but I picked up hitchhiking. And how do you find it? Yeah, generally fine. Yeah. Never had a bad experience. So. There you This point I want to arrive at now um, is something I'm curious about. It happened many years ago, and uh, we were in high school. Mm -hmm. We were in our final year in high school, and you disappeared for a long time. You went to Africa. Yeah. Can you share some of what that experience meant for you as a 17-year-old mm. and how that influenced your life progression? So the context was it was me and two men from church. We were going to visit some missionaries our church supported in West Africa. It wasn't my first overseas trip, but it was the first one that like a third world country and without, oh no, I'd been without my parents. But anyway, it, it was a real eye-opener. Uh, so I went to a country called Guinea uh, in West Africa. It was under the rule of like a military dictatorship type thing, as, as a lot of those places are. A, a funny thing on the way, we had to go through France to get there. So it was a former French colony. And we stopped on the way at a, city called Nouakchott in Mauritania and um, it was this airport in a desert and like half the plane got off and disappeared and we were like there's nothing here like <laughs> where are you all going <laughs> you know? it was very strange and then from there we flew on to Guinea which a lot more green uh, not desert of North Africa yeah we saw awesome stuff there uh, we went up sort of in the I don't know if you call it the highlands but in the mountains and uh, it was beautiful small town up there visiting these people. I guess one of the big impacts, and people say this a lot, 
it's, it's almost cliched, but you'd see people who seem to have nothing, but seem to be incredibly happy, which people say a lot about third world. And I guess while they weren't materially rich, they were rich in friendships and family and that sort of thing. In mm-hmm. almost all the non-Western cultures, you know, they're more collective, you know, family, friends. You know, that was really interesting to see these happy, happy people everywhere. You know, and you think, why are you happy? Do you think that's a cultural bias that you've taken your Australian materialistic cultural framework into another cultural context and seeing that how can you be so happy when you have nothing whereas in Australia it's different yeah as a naive 17 year old and I suppose so I didn't grow up particularly wealthy like we were middle class but you know my parents were stood up in that so we didn't have a lot of money Mm. I didn't have a lot of new things and that sort of thing so I guess maybe I had it in my head that life would be better with more money and more stuff that other people had you know, that, that's entirely possible. Over there, they classify rubbish, you know. It was like when white people throw something out, it's still usable. <laughs> you know what I mean? This is what the African people It's a reuse culture. Yeah, but when they throw it out, then it's properly done with, you know. So secondhand market. A really impacting incident that happened. So one of the local African pastors, he would at least weekly visit a prison in this city we were in. And it was very medieval. People in this prison only got like the, local, the missionaries we were visiting, they paid to put a well in so that people could have water in the prison. So I guess you go back hundreds or thousands of years, they didn't necessarily feed you in prison. You relied on donations from friends and family to get you through. So that was the same in this place. There was no um, provision, food. Or, There's no state funding. No, no, no state funding for medicine or anything. And um, so we were going in to visit and sort of the deal was, because this guy's trying to proselytize for these prisoners you know that's the deal he gives them food he gives them a little talk so he invited us to go so two me and another one of the other guys went in and it was like a stable it was like a big stable if you could imagine but it had outer walls so all the guards were on the outside and they shut the door behind you so the guards stayed on the outside and we were inside with the prisoners you and your mate and the pastor and the prisoners and that's it yeah and that's it wow and there's like a head prisoner like this old dude he had a piece of string that he strung across this courtyard and that was the divider. I was like, stay back. You know? <laughs> he was protecting you from the other prisoners by having a piece of string. Is that the idea? Yeah. <laughs> that was the partition. A piece of string yes. was going to protect you from a violent prison. <laughs> that was the partition. <laughs> I know. How did yeah. you feel? Oh, it was scary. I was really scared. I don't know that they were particularly violent. It's just unfortunate the conditions were so bad that if you're in there for like four years for theft, you're probably going to die just from sickness and mm. all that. It's like a life sentence. So it was scary. We got over the fear of like, oh, you know, it was scary when they shut the door behind us and the guards were on the outside. <laughs> <laughs> you know, looking back, you know, this guy's bringing them food. So, you know, if they do any harm, he's not going to come back. So realistically, yeah. it was shocking because there was like only a couple of women in there with a bunch of men and sort of head goes to a dark place. Like, oh, what happened there? And you really feel it like, you know, we were bringing like a message about God and faith and they're like, this is real for these guys, you know, like they could die in here. You wonder, is it sufficient? You know, is it just worth How long did you spend in there with them? Oh, probably less than an hour. And that was the only time you went in? Yeah, I wasn't keen to go. <laughs> <laughs> you weren't keen to go back. Scary. It was scary. Yeah. And there were like people off, like dying in a corner sort of thing. Like it was pretty rough. Man, that's crazy. Or as you would say in the UK, grim. Yeah, 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 grim. Well, Grim, can you articulate how that one hour of time spent in that prison with just you and the prisoners changed your perspective or your worldview? Yeah, sure. I mean, it just, it really galvanized me to try and want to, again, it's cliche, but like make the world a better place in some way, Mm. you know, improve the world. I think that was big for our generation growing up. We had this idea that we're going to change the world and all this sort of stuff these ideas were given to us. It really showed me there are people in other parts of the world who are in absolutely desperate situations. Mm. Like if you live in any Western country, you're surely you're in the top 1% yeah. of all the wealth in the world. It doesn't matter if you're poor. If you're poor in Australia, I mean, it's hard, but it's not like dying in a corner prison. So did you appreciate the little things a bit more and, and the fact that in Australia you weren't classed as rich per se, but in terms of the whole world, you were extremely well off? Yeah, I think so. It gives you a great appreciation. I mean, the whole experience, I mean, that was really impacting. But, you know, the whole time, I mean, people were so desperate. 
Like when we were stopped in traffic there, people were trying to steal the spare tire off the back of the four-wheel drive. They would badge the car, like if you left it anywhere, mm. not locked in a compound, you know. We saw child soldiers, you know, uh, possibly teenagers given a gun because the soldier manning the checkpoint was too lazy to do it. So, he just, so that, that was my first experience of like, yeah, seeing automatic weapons pointed in your direction and that sort of thing. So that was pretty wild too. You appreciate the safety. You know, I mean, there was bribery and stuff that goes on and, you know, and people are desperate, you know, and beggars and all that. So, yeah, it's pretty confronting. And as a 17-year-old with not a huge amount of life experience, especially outside of one's own country, it's a big cultural shock and, and jump into yeah, sure. the reality of the, of the whole planet as a whole. That's right, yeah. And I think probably more people live in a, an existence closer to that than what we live in. I do remember coming back to school and just thinking that everything was so petty you know, that, that people were worried about, people my age were worried about just seeing just petty, like, oh, you're concerned about this or that. Like, yeah, that yeah. doesn't matter at all in the big scheme of things, <laughs> you know. I, I do remember that feeling and, and I try and cultivate the gratitude and, and all that still. And with my children, you know, explaining to them that, you know, whilst I can't give them every little thing that they ask for, that let's be grateful, we have a roof over our head, we have food, you know. <laughs> You've got your family around. How do they respond to that? Yeah, I don't think they get it. <laughs> yeah, maybe they need to go and have an experience like you had in in Africa, and it'll really. Yeah, I mean they've seen in Pakistan, but they just think it's dirty. And why are people dirty? You know, why do they throw rubbish on the ground? You know, like Australia, like we have it in school, like it's beaten into us about environment and rubbish and recycling, like which is really good. It's a great thing. And then they go to Pakistan, the kids are like, oh, why do people just throwing their rubbish here and there? Yeah, I hope so. Appreciate Cameron, the last thing I, I, I want to ask you, it's something that I'm asking every guest I have on. In terms of travel and in terms of your life experiences, do you have a piece of advice that you could share? It can be philosophical. It can be practical, pragmatic. What would be something that you want to share? I would think basically take the time more, do less things, but do them really well. So often young travelers, you know, just try and pack in as many things. And it's like picking the box, you know. I've found it's a lot better to sort of get planted somewhere for a few weeks. So city to city every day, I, I feel like you don't absorb anything at all. And I would recommend whatever your budget is, have at least 20% extra money just for things that you can't think of. Because there will always be things that happen that you can't think of. And it really sucks getting stuck somewhere yeah. with access to limited resources. And, not having options like we can't know the unknown so scouts thing you know be prepared so basically you're saying embrace the slow traveler mindset and always have a security blanket when it comes to budget yeah nice good tips man (laughs) cameron mate well thanks for coming on it's been really good to catch up share some stories of uh the old wedding days in pakistan road trips to tasmania some extra bits that you've added on the side too thanks for having me mate Hope to see you down this way again soon when this is all over. All this COVID stuff. Yeah, I'll be back in Australia hopefully next year, mate. Awesome. Look forward to it. <laughs> Thanks for listening to The Nostalgic Vagabond. My guest has been Cameron Thompson. There are more episodes in this podcast series where you can hear interesting stories and different tips from other travellers. Check them out wherever you get your podcasts. You can also follow me at The Nostalgic Beat. Thanks to Tom Forfer for creating the soundtrack to the series. Don't forget, your journey is special. Own it. I've been Alan Hill. Until next time.